Today's episode of the Rewatchables on the Ringer Podcast Network brought to you by State Farm. Around here, we love talking about movies that we watch, rewatch, watch again because they're just that good. It's the thoughtful details, the little things other movies don't have that keep us coming back. Here's the deal. When it comes to insurance, we can't get enough of State Farm. They have all the details we appreciate. They make insurance easy. Monitor your coverage, pay your bill, or even file claim through their app, which was awarded Best Insurance Mobile App 2019. And thanks to their network of 19,000 agents, you'll have someone local to walk you through options, help you choose a policy that meets your individual needs versus cookie-cutter coverage. Best of all, they give it to you straight. No gimmicks, no games, just guidance you can count on. It's a no-brainer. Go out, get the insurance you deserve. Get State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Get a quote or find an agent at statefarm.com. We're also brought to you by a new podcast on The Ringer. If you like the rewatchables, there's a really good chance you're going to like this one. It is called The Wire, Way Down in the Hole. The hosts are Van Lathan and Jamel Hill, who is on this podcast that you're about to listen to. The first two episodes are up. You can find them on Spotify. You can find them on Apple. If you go to the Ringer's Twitter feed, you can find a couple breakouts. Uh, we put some cool video over, but this is an awesome podcast. They're going to rewatch The Wire episode by episode and do a podcast about each one, some season-ending awards podcasts as well. So it's going to be with you here for, I don't know, two episodes a week. It's like about 65 episodes. Yeah, it'll be like, you'll get like half a year out of this. Sign up now, The Wire. Way down in the hole, you can subscribe on Apple, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. All's fair in love and basketball. Is it? Is it really fair? We're about to find out. The Rewatchables coming up next. You forgot to be there. If I stayed, I wouldn't be starting. Well, at least you got your priorities straight. Look, I'm entering a draft. I'm going pro. So that's it. Just forget about you and me. New Line Cinema presents a story about the passion it takes. I never knew anyone loved ball as much as you. To keep your dreams alive. I've loved you since I was 11, and it just won't go away. This spring. I'll play you. One game, one-on-one. For what? Your heart. All's fair in love and basketball. All right, Jamel Hill is here. Your first rewatchables. This is... It's just, it's magical to watch. It's to see the training wheels come off. You're just riding the bike around the rewatchables yard. And uh, and this is a classic movie. Yeah, it is. I'm very excited to be here. Because um, I was really jealous because I listen to the rewatchables often. And so you guys recently did one of my favorite movies, which was Tommy Boy. And I'm like, one day, one day I will be called up to the big leagues to do rewatchables. So very excited to be here for this. There's one specific reason we're doing this. It's the 20-year anniversary. And then there's a big picture reason we're doing this. I've wanted to do it for a while. I think, first of all, I think it, it might be the best sports movie of the last 20 years. I, I think, you know, sports movies kind of takes a turn. There's a Disney stretch where it's like the rookie, Miracle, those kind of movies. And then it it kind of starts fading out with Gridiron Gang and those kind of things. Has a resurgence. I think Warrior is really good. I think there's been some good ones, but I think pound for pound, 
this is my favorite one. And the coolest thing is it's timeless. You know, like I watch it with my daughter that came out 20 years ago. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't miss the cell phone stuff. A lot of it is dated back in the 80s and early 90s anyway. So you're going backwards. And it's one of those things you just watch it over and over again. Is this a rom-com or a sports movie to you? I think it's more rom-com than sports movies, even though there are some very specific sports messages in it that I think hold up really well. Um, This movie came out in 2000. So this is a couple years after the WNBA first started. So with all that said, um, kind of the subliminal messages about gender equity in sports, um, about the WNBA, even giving us a bit of a glimpse, even though it's a very Hollywood glimpse to some degree about what life is like overseas for female basketball players. All that stuff holds up incredibly well. Um, And as a rom-com, I think because it was built around sports and while we were used to seeing sports rom-coms happen, they were always built a certain way and not really from a female point of view. So it was kind of ahead of its time in that um, in that way. Although I do have, you know, I I haven't watched this movie from start to finish. It's been a little bit. I mean, I, I, I tend to catch it when it's bits and pieces, catch it in bits and pieces when it's on like regular television, when it's on like, you know, BT or TNT or something like that. Watching it in full, I have to say, I have a, I have many different opinions than I did uh, when I first saw this movie then, particularly uh, rating whether or not Quincy McCall was actually a good boyfriend, but we can get into that later. Or whether he was a good basketball player. I have that well, written down <laughs> as well. Yeah. Right. So, exactly. I'm not- I'm not sure what position he was. He was a five ten shooting guard. It's not not really uh not somebody that would be a lottery pick. But I the stuff you mentioned about the gender gender equity and it it's a theme that back then was a lot more ambitious than I think it is now. I think if you watch this in 2020 standards, that scene there's a great scene in there when uh she she gets thrown out of not thrown out of a game, but she gets a T and she gets benched and she's talking to Quincy about it after and he's like, You gotta keep your head straight. And she comes back at him and she says, You jump in some guy's face, you you talk smack and you get a, a pat on your ass. But because I'm a female, I get told to calm down and act like a lady. I'm a ball player. Okay. That's the kind of I'd never seen any a conversation like that in a sports movie before. Sports movies were male dominated entirely. And really, other than A League of Their Own and Girl Fight, which I think came out with uh, maybe a year before with Michelle Rodriguez, is there any other any other sports movies where you even had conversations like that? Uh, I don't think so. And I, I think we have to point out the other significant factor is that we're also having this conversation inside the scope of a Black family and a Black dynamic, which is really revolutionary for the time. And the gender part of it, it wasn't just about her relationship with Quincy and about their differing worlds as basketball player, her being a woman, him being a man. It's also the interesting gender dynamic between her and Alfre Woodard, who plays her mom, because her mom is more traditional and, um, you know, she kind of has this uh, Martha Stewart-like you know, life and those things are really important to her. And with, um, you know, Monica pl- played by Sinai Latham with her being more of a tomboy. So you have that dynamic of what does it really mean to be a woman and who's defining what womanhood is. And when you think about all these themes, those are pretty heavy for sports movies, which is also often focused on the result. Um, it's also usually uplifting and it's about, you know, not just winning and losing, but playing with character and integrity, like kind of all these new Rockney like themes that are usually in sports movies. They don't really deal this intricate, intricately with gender and certainly not with race. So it was, um, 
it was very ahead of its time in that regard as well because you just placed a normal situation and the difference was you just put black people in it and had the same conversation. And you're also looking at, really starting with Jerry Maguire. So sports movies have these different runs where, you know, from 74 to 85, it's just the Rocky theme with different sports. Just, it, they, you have some outliers. Like I think Slapshot is actually a really interesting movie that's not just a Rocky type of movie. It's It's got cool, well-written characters. It's got a specific theme. It takes you into a world. But for the most part, it's that Rocky blueprint. And then it kind of flips into post-Hoosiers into like the comedy, you know, the major league, unnecessary roughness. We have that whole run. And then Jerry Maguire comes along in 96. And that's, a, it's a little like this movie, actually. It's a movie about people. It's set in sports. It it has some awesome sports movie elements. Like we, we it was one of the first rewatchables we did. Rod Tidwell was a character I'd just never seen in a movie before. But it was also had a rom-com thing and it was just really well written. And it was a movie that lived in the world of sports, but wasn't a sports movie. And I feel like Love and Basketball is like that too. It's a sports movie, but it's not. It's about the people. Her relationship with her mom is, I think, more important than her relationship with Quincy. All the dynamics in that. I, I hadn't really seen it that really in a movie either, the whole tomboy theme. And then just the way, you know, they, it seems like they're relatively well off or they're in a nice neighborhood. It's never never really addressed. It's all the characters in this movie are black. It's not not really a thing. You're just in the world. There there was a tendency, I think, back then to be like, we are making a black movie. Here are some black characters. We're gonna talk about black things. And this movie was never like that. It didn't it it kind of that was just part of what it was. It was never overt, I don't feel like ever. You agree with what? that? No, I totally agree with that. And you also have to realize the era we were coming off of because we were coming off of Boys in the Hood, Menace to Society. We were coming off all these very heavy black trauma related movies. And right. then there was a term that was made. Um, I don't know if it was maybe Love Jones because that came out in 97. But then you started to see like Love Jones, The Wood. Like then it made a turn into look Black people can fall in love. Black people can just live in a neighborhood and be coming of age and talk about adulthood. So you started to see sort of situations and movies where black people were placed in normal situations without somebody having to be shot, without it about being something like completely um, traumatic or specifically related to the black experience. Uh, I wouldn't even refer to this movie more. I mean, as important as it was as a sports movie, as a movie about gender, even though it had all black people and at least from what I can tell and uh, that this might have been in like Ladera Heights. I mean, because clearly it was like, a, you know, you saw Baldwin Hills. You saw them at this one scene where they're in the car together coming back from the game and they're riding past. Um, I think it was the Crenshaw Mall, Baldwin Hills, Crenshaw Mall. And so you knew kind of about um, what area it was in, which for people who are not from Los Angeles or not familiar with the area, like that's known as kind of like the black middle class, upper class area neighborhood. So you had that kind of important component where they were showing black people in a different light without it having to be specifically a black movie, even though I think people probably put it in that bucket of being a, a black movie. So these are all, you know, super important and ahead of its time kind of themes considering what were the popular black movies of the moment. Like they were just ushering in this age of like normalcy. It does feel like an era that starts late nineties. And what's interesting is a lot of the people in this movie end up in other movies together. 
So I made a list. It's like, so Dennis Haysbert's, he's in waiting, waiting to exhale. Omar Epps and Sana Lathan, the stars of these movie, th- this movie, they're in the wood a year before. They start dating, which I didn't know for, it, f- until I did the research. They're dating for a year. They're hiding it from the director. They don't want the director to know that they're in like a serious relationship. Uh, Monica Calhoun, Regina Hill, and Sana Lathan, they're all in the best man and the best man holiday. Boris, Co- how do you say his name? Kojo? Kojo. Boris Kojo, what? yeah. My, my wife was asking last night, why wasn't that guy one of the biggest stars in the world? She was like, there was just nobody more handsome. I don't understand what happened. I was like, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. He was with Sana Lathan and Brown Sugar. Omar Epps and Tyra Banks were dating in higher learning. She dies. Uh, Omar Epps and Dennis Haysbert were together in Major League Two. And then Gabrielle Union and Omar Epps were together in Almost Christmas 2016. I, I don't think I've seen a movie with more interconnected uh, people in different movies. Well, it's also an indictment of what Hollywood was for black actors at the time. It was like 12 of them and they kept circulating the same 12. And because of that, I think you saw a lot of crossover and a lot of bleed over to them playing each other in different movies to the point where um, and the only person missing from all those people you named was like Nia Long. Because Nia Long was like literally in the in half of these movies where she's starring opposite a lot of the same people that you you mentioned. So some of it was uh, about the trajectory. It was very limited. Um, it's still, you know, it, it's better now, but it was very limited then for black actors and actresses. And uh, it's funny you say that about Boris Kojo because... Not too long after that, he, um, I think he, I'm trying to remember when the, the series Soul Food started because that's where he got his biggest break because the series right. Soul Food on Showtime and he started dating and then later marrying Nicole Ari Parker. Um, and you're, that was something that was also a treat because I'm looking at this movie and you're seeing certain faces. You're like, oh, a young Regina Hall. Oh, a young Gabrielle Union. Oh, a young Monica Calhoun who, um, also was in one of my favorites, Guilty Pleasure Movies, Players Club, which <laughs> yeah. you ever touch Players Club, Bill? I'm, I'm your woman on that one. All right. <laughs> you ever All touch right. it? I, I don't see that being in your purview, but if for some reason you decide to go there, uh, then that's where it is. And so, you know, Monica Calhoun is on the scene. So you look and you can literally see kind of this pool of black actors and actresses. And of course, this movie um, was directed by Gina uh, Prince Blythewood, who is a black woman and also somebody, big fan of basketball. So it was just a lot of, um, you could definitely play a, a Kevin Bacon sort of game with this cast <laughs> because they are all interconnected. And Omar Epps has this crazy 90s run and you go, going back to your point about how there just wasn't a lot of opportunities for black actors and actresses, he kind of just becomes the go-to guy for all these movies. I mean, I, I wrote down just his career arc, what, the characters he played where they were in their lives. So in Juice, he's in high school. The program is next. He's in college. Major League Two, he's an adult. Higher learning, he's back in college. Don't be a menace, he's in high school. ER, he's out of med school. Now he's a doctor. Scream 2, he's back in high school. The Mod Squad, he's an adult. The Wood, he's an adult. And now Love and Basketball, he's back in high school again. This guy, <laughs> he was he was moving around in 15 year spans. And it's weird, like, especially in this movie, he's he's 27. Sana Lathan's 29. They're playing uh high schoolers. It's it's a little strange to me that they had to play the Omar Epps card, but then I, I don't know really like who else would it have been in 2000? Well, the uh, the the other big person you know, in terms of, of black actors was probably Morris Chestnut. 
and um, right. him or Lorenz Tate. Like legit, it was probably like five Tay Diggs because Tay Diggs, you know, he was in Best Man. He was in the Wood. All the people that you, the other black men that you saw in those other movies that you mentioned, where they're all interconnected, were probably his competition. Now I don't know. Wood, how ha- it was. Wood Harris. Wood Wood Harris. I wonder if Wood, Wood got a look. <laughs> uh, would it have been Wood Harris? I don't know. Um, because I'm trying to think of the roles that he was playing at the time. Uh, because of course they're all being kind of typecast, but so they were looking for kind of romantic comedy black guy, which Morris Chestnut had the cottage industry on that, and so did Tay Diggs, and so that's why when you put them together in the best man, it was like Voltron forming. So, it was just a, <laughs> but but those probably would have been, and I wouldn't be surprised that, um, and maybe this I had Omar Epps on, on my own podcast um, not too long ago, and maybe this is a question I should have asked him: is who else was up for that role? Like in Higher Learning. I believe Tupac was supposed to be in that and right. he was supposed to play the character that he played. I would not be surprised if a lot of the actors that were in love and basketball read for various parts or like if Gabrielle Union if it, originally, if they had her reading first and I like, I would, I would guess it was probably a lot of mixing and mingling with this cast. And by the way, this was happening with white actors in the nineties too. Cause when I had uh, Matt Damon on the pod, he said it was like the same six people going for every rose, him, Chris O'Donnell, Ed Norton, Affleck and they would just all see each other and start laughing because they were all trying to, you know, they're typecast as these specific preppy looking guys. So a movie like The Chamber or a movie like uh, Scent of a Woman, they're all going primal fear. They're all going for the same roles. Um, You mentioned Gina Prince Braithwood. So this movie, she writes the script a couple years before and it gets in a good spot. And and this is right around the time Spike Lee and some other people are trying to advance the cause of, you know, unproven black voices, young black voices. And Spike gets behind this. He produces it with 40 Acres and a mule. Um, but the big thing was the casting. And um that I, I I'm gonna spoil casting what ifs here now. So she has two people. She first of all, she tries seven hundred people for Monica. Seven hundred looks at what? everybody, everybody. She's looking at it forever, and she said, "Quote was very important to me to have an athlete." So when we started auditions, they had to read, but they also had to meet me on the court. She said they read Serena Williams, but she was unavailable. How about that? Wow. She read Marion Jones on tape. That didn't. Ooh, that happen. would not this- have aged well. That would not have aged well. <laughs> Huffington posted an oral history about this movie five years ago. So a lot of that's in there. So it said it came down to Sana Lathan and uh, Naisha Butler, who was a star at Georgia Tech. Sana Lathan had never touched a basketball. Naisha Butler couldn't act. So she said, I, I put Sana Lathan with a basketball coach for two months and Naisha with an acting coach. And then Sana had improved, but not completely. She was better, but you couldn't throw her out in a game and have her hang. And then she said, my husband finally asked, is this a basketball movie or is it a love story? At the end of the day, I realized it was a love story and you can fake a jump shot, but you can't fake a close-up. Did you Mm. know that she hadn't touched a basketball before this movie? I did know this because uh, back when I was at ESPN, we had, um, and, you know, uh, according to those who wrote about it, it was one of the... One of the moments where you knew ESPN had gotten too liberal. We had Gina Prince <laughs> Bythewood and Sanaa Lathan on SportsCenter because uh, th- uh, they were promoting their new show, Shots Fired, which I think was on Fox. 
And uh, it was it was actually kind of close to an anniversary of Love and Basketball. Um, not one as significant as the one this year, but like it, it was, you know, just a couple years ago. So it was 16th or 17th, somewhere in that, that neighborhood. So we talked about the movie and Sanaa said that she that she had never picked up a basketball and she had to go through two months of vigorous training to try to make it look at least believable. And I'll say this. I don't know, and I'm somebody who dabbled at playing basketball. It was never my sport in high school. Fast pitch softball was my sport. I don't know if I would be where she was after two months. <laughs> I don't. Because she actually, I'm not saying that she, you know, she didn't look like Cynthia Cooper out, out there or anything, but she made it look, she looked more believable to me as a basketball player than Omar Epps did. And I don't know what his history is with it as well, but she looked more believable. So, I always thought she was really believable. And then when I, I did the research before I watched it last night. And so now I'm like really laser focused on it. Couple things. She gets better as the movie goes along. Like when, you're, when she's that. in high school, they're really trying to do these sneaky cuts. So you don't really see that much of her playing basketball. The, the best example of this ever was Summer Catch with Freddie Prince. Because apparently he just couldn't pitch. So every he would do the motion and then they would just cut to behind him and you would never actually just see him throw a baseball. In this, they in the high school scene where they lose in the championship game, there's a lot of like quick cuts and camera pretending to be her. And so they kind of hide her, get to college. She's in the scrimmages and stuff. And you can see with the handle, like she looks down a couple of times. There, there's little things like that where you're like, oh yeah, there, I, I get it. But for the most part, she moves like an athlete she carries herself like an athlete. And then by the time we get to the final game, the climactic ending, I, she must have had four or five months of training at that point. That one-on-one game is pretty believable. Like, yeah, no, she's, she's got crossovers. Believable. Yeah. Her <laughs> defense is good. She's got a nice jump shot at that point. But what's crazy is she said she was so scarred by the uh, experience. She'd never touched the basketball again. Cause the director was just never happy with her basketball and, you know, and she always kind of felt like, oh man, I had to work so hard to get this part. She still doesn't totally believe me. It's a, it kind of mirrors what happens in the movie when she goes to USC where it's like the coach didn't really want her. Um, but it's just, <laughs> I never knew any of that stuff until last night. And I, I think she really pulled it off. So here's something she deserves credit for. If you remember uh, when she's at USC and of course it's, you know, one of the standout scenes and kind of is, uh, you know, illuminating this tension that she has with her coach and just her being a young player, freshman, kind of cocky, you know, normal stuff that you see out of a freshman athlete. And when she pulls up for three on the break and then holds her hand up, I just I just want to point out this was in 2000. This was before the Warriors were doing that. This is before right. Steph Curry was doing that. That in itself. And I remember thinking watching that movie because at that point I was three years into my professional career as a sports journalist. I was thinking to myself, who the hell would have an open layup and pull up for three on a break? That's ridiculous. Right. Your coach would bench you for that. And she right. did it. She made the shot. And then now fast forward. It's 2020. And that's all any of the players do now. Ahead of oh, her 100%. time. Ahead of her time. One thing that she got down, which I'm surprised if she was just getting coached, was just kind of the movement of basketball, you know, moving through screens, um, playing defense, stuff like that. That could yeah. go really badly. I actually think Omar Epps, who I think really did play basketball and was supposedly a good basketball player, was a no-brainer casting. I thought his basketball was way less believable. Um, <laughs> I, and I want to cover that later. I don't want to do that now. So Gina said... 
the reason she made this movie, Grown Up Ball, was everything to me. I'm an athlete first and always have been. It's been so much a part of my life. I just didn't feel like that I ever saw that woman or girl reflected on screen. And I'm going back to 2000. She's right. It, it was basically a league of their own. And a league of their own became you know, a really important movie over the last 30 years just because it had female athletes kind of hanging out and the same interactions, all that stuff. Um, but Sana Latham says, just big picture for this uh, movie, it's so cool and amazing that it became this beloved film that people love. Last night I went to dinner and these two girls came up to me and said they grew up on the movie and they're looking for their cue. Who knew when I was shooting it? I had no idea. To me, I was just coming in every day and doing the work. It's one of those things that happen once in a while. Not very often does a film speak to different generations across cultural and gender lines. You know, my daughter, the first time we watched this movie, she must have been eight. And she watched it again with me last night. She's probably seen it seven times. Um, it's a little awkward, the virginity scene, but we I was fast forwarding through that last night. She's like, dad, you don't need to forward through it. Uh, it's PG-13, but um, it is the the whole generational thing. Did you ever expect that 20 years ago that it would be this movie that would just live on? I, I actually thought it had a pretty good um, chance of having some real staying power. Um, oh, and by the way, real quick, is this the same daughter that you tried to watch Insecure with? Because <laughs> I saw your tweet. <laughs> yeah, that lasted two minutes. I was like, she's ready. It won't be that bad. And then as I had the remote ready, though. So as soon as I saw the TSA agent about to go to town, I was like, all right, all right, okay, bad idea. But yeah, that was the wrong episode for that. <laughs> yeah, kudos to you. I was like, oh, look at that. It could have been a nice moment. I wonder how long, because that was the first question I was thinking in my mind when I saw your tweet. At what point did he turn it off? Because it was kind of littered throughout. Yeah, so it only made it a couple minutes. <laughs> Two seconds. Two seconds. All right. Um, but no, I, I, I thought it really did have some staying power just because um, for me, uh, when I saw it, I identified... I felt I was Monica. Um, I was a neighborhood tomboy. Uh, certainly was used to, you know, little boys early on. They try to, they go harder at you because you're a woman and they feel like you're in, you're a girl rather, and they feel like you're in their space. So I very much understood that dynamic of always having to prove that you knew more, that you were just as fast, uh, that, you know, you could handle yourself just as a as an athlete. It's just, again, basketball wasn't my sport. We used to play a lot of um, touch football, or not touch football, sorry, tackle football, uh, and yeah. I was the quarterback. And so as much as I hated Notre Dame, I was always imitating Tony Rice, which <laughs> was, wow. was kind of weird. Yeah. Tony! Yeah, because um, the running the option, like, that's awesome. If you're a quarterback, you have the ball in your hands. I mean, you have the ball in your hands anyway, but you really have the ball in your hands if you're running the option. Back when I had a, a, a few wheels left. But um, so I, I could definitely understand that awkwardness of being into these things that girls aren't traditionally into. And my mother, while she was not as prissy as Alfred Woodard, she would often be confused like I don't understand why are you always playing with these little boys you're a girl you're not supposed to be roughhousing and if I'm coming back home I'm coming back from outside and I have like scrapes on me little like little little kid stuff and she'd be freaking out saying I was too rough or too aggressive and so from that standpoint that I knew there was a generation of girls who had lived that experience and even going you know through high school and through college especially if their careers athletic careers 
stayed with him that they then had to deal with maybe not being as seen compared to, because she makes it, you know, we were talking a, a moment ago about how they had all these gender equity messages. They weren't just about just their sport, but I remember her making the comment to Q, um, I don't have some red carpet waiting for me like you do. And so she's, uh, there's this constant illusion that at some point she's very cognizant that this ride is going to be over. And I think a lot of women who grew up playing sports, that was always in the back of your mind as well. Like, okay, we know this is going to end at some point. It can't go on forever. And uh, with that being the case, um, and with this movie coming out just a couple years into the WNBA, it was easy to see where those generational points would merge. And even now, while obviously the WNBA has gotten bigger, um, women's basketball, especially college women's basketball, has exploded. You see what the ratings do in college softball for ESPN. Those themes that they deal with in this movie are still persistent. It's still about being seen. And so that's why I thought that even from the first time I saw it, um, that this would be a movie that a lot of women would be able to relate to and relate to for a long time. Yeah. You know, it's funny because my daughter, she's 14 now, but, you know, she was always a really good athlete, even as a little kid. And it's it's interesting to watch the 10 year old Monica parts because I think all little girls hit that point somewhere between, you know, they're probably eight, nine, 10, somewhere in there where they're really good. They they can hang with the boys, but they start realizing like, all right, am I going to go the tomboy way? Do I also want to go the girl side? Like, like you almost become bipolar in some way with you have these two different identities you're trying to figure out at the same time and how to mesh that. And I remember when she turned like, 11, it became a thing. Like she was playing sports all the time, but was also really trying to figure out the girl side of things. And the Monica stuff, when she's 10 in this movie, when they're like doing her hair, when they make her wear the dress to all that stuff, it's just so good, you know? And, and it's stuff that just wasn't in movies really at all, that little balance. And you could see it even when she goes to college, same thing, like just trying to figure out what is it by the time she gets the job at the bank when she's an adult, all of a sudden she's all dolled out, looks great, but you can tell she died. It's not her. Right. And, uh, I just, I like how they navigate that. And I think that was a big part of why Gina probably wanted to make this movie. Like what's that balance? What's that balance of femininity and being a great athlete? I haven't seen another movie balance it the way this one does. Well, and it's such a nuanced take. If you think about it for a movie is to dive deep into the layers of, of womanhood. Um, we're we're used to seeing men kind of get that treatment about what manhood means. And a lot of times that treatment is through uh, either sexuality or conquest or something like that, or even bravery and bravado. But with women normally, and this even applies to movies that aren't about sports, that the, the nuanced treatment that she gave womanhood is really a, a real good model. And, I thought it was important that she showed the progression of that, as you pointed out, that there's a, yeah. a certain progression when you're younger and you're trying to fit in because that's the most important thing to you. Then she gets to a point where she's like, you know, to hell with fitting in. I'm just going to be me. And even when she's older, because it's that scene where she um, is coming home from the bank. And the first thing she does is take off her heels right there on the grass. <laughs> and, right. and that shows you. And I think it's a really heartwarming moment because it shows you that that Tom girl inside of her will never go away, that she's not going to let it be pushed out by these societal norms about how women are supposed to act. And I thought that they were kind of making that statement as well by 
choosing the love interest, the other love interest is in Tyra Banks, what she looked like in her demeanor versus what Sanaa Lathan was. Like that was a statement in itself, right? <laughs> that was a statement in itself because they picked sort of a, a very uh, interesting caricature because she's a flight attendant, right? And she's right. very catering to him and very, you know, much in many ways like Sanaa Lathan's mom would be with a man. And so she gets to see like, oh, okay, well, I'm here for him. I don't know if I'm, you know, practically spoon feeding him his cereal or whatever. So they're showing you kind of different dynamics and how that can even make Tom girls. Because I know I certainly felt this growing up. It's like femininity made me feel super insecure. Like you'd be around all these super girly girls who were wearing makeup and talking about boys, and I start to feel like something was wrong with me because those weren't things I was necessarily into. And so I thought it did a really good job just visually kind of communicating that. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Epp said it's a sort of that fairy tale love story for women. Monica and Quincy had a real friendship, and that's the basis of every great relationship, which is really hard to do. I think that part of it is timeless. I think that's what I like the most about this movie. I love movies. I, this is one of my one of my weaknesses as a movie fan. The movies where we watch people get older, and especially if it's rooted like they knew each other way back when, and now now they're growing up, and now they're at this stage, and now they're at that stage. I'm always in on that. I thought this this movie did one of the best versions of that. You know, even like the stuff when he's in high school before they've even hooked up, and his mom and his dad are fighting and he just kind of is like, fuck this and opens the window and goes in her thing. And she knows he's going to come in and she just throws him the pill and the blanket and he sleeps on the floor. It's so subtle. But when you see that, you're like, Oh, like these, these people have a real connection and then it pays off in the last part of the movie. But I, it's, it's funny how many movies just squander that or do it incorrectly or like try to show you these two have a connection and they just do it wrong. And this is like, all the subtleties is what I like the most about this movie. Yeah, well, even the subtle decision to start this movie when they were kids. Um, yeah. I think that was kind of a big decision to make like, because they could have very easily have sped this up and maybe started it when they were in high school and kind of gone through using the traditional tropes that we see kind of romances play out. But I think what Omar Epps said was really important is that this the fact that this was rooted in friendship meaning that they had a different level of respect for each other than maybe you might see in relationships that just start off with one lever of just romantic or bust. I mean, that's not to suggest that they were going to be best friends if it didn't work out, because that clearly wasn't wasn't the case. But it is to say that there is value in one another that isn't always sexual. Because aside from the virginity scene, this was not an overtly sexual movie. And even the virginity scene was treated kind of with care. And yeah, you had the sort of slightly somewhat, I mean, allusion to some raunch in college when they're playing strip basketball or whatever. But beyond that, I thought that they kept the the romance kind of sweet and innocent on purpose because I think they did want to highlight the fact that they had a connection that was deeper than just something physical. I also like that they were honest about, you know, if you're somebody like Quincy, you got to watch out. There's some, there's some women that are going to be coming at you. And that speech his dad has about you're in the hotel lobby. There's a hundred people downstairs and 20 of them can get through security. Obviously really ridiculous and exaggerated, but it was interesting to hear all these different characters in the movie talk about the threat of watch out who you end up with. 
Yeah. Be careful. And he's got this perfect person sitting there that he doesn't even realize is the perfect person. Although I will say, if you go back and break down that speech, that was another one of those movie moments that jumped out to me. His father did give the best defense of himself. No. As he did not at all. Like he no, not he's not exactly likable. Okay. He's not. Not in that moment. You know, I thought as a father, he was like, great. But in that moment, when he's like, you got to hear, he basically is trying to implore him that he has a side to the story that may change his mind. And I'm like, Dude, that didn't come out the way you think it did. That wasn't the winning argument that you thought it was, especially when he's like, I wasn't ready for no marriage. So you implied his mother trapped yeah. him. And then right. you're like, basically, it's too many hoes out here. And that's why I can't I can't be faithful. <laughs> I can't be blamed. I can't be yeah, blamed. Like, I am a victim. And it's just like, bro, right. that did not end, that did not go the way that you think that it went. I like seeing that in a movie though, because I do think probably. I, I think that was realistic. I'm sure Quincy's dad, that person has had that conversation with his son who was an NBA player or whatever, who that was their defense. Like, you know, man, they're just coming at you. At, what point, at some point, what can you do? It's like, really? That's that's your defense? Yeah. yeah. Well, a smaller sports question that I have for you. Um, and hopefully this, I'm not ruining or spoiling anything for later. How did you feel about the decision to make his dad a clipper? I have that later. You have let's that later? Okay, that. we'll get yeah, to that. I wonder, I wonder that. what you would think about that. All right. So this movie made uh, $27 million in the U.S., ninth all-time mm. for a hoop film, 37th all-time for a sports drama, but I'm sure it's been watched and rewatched more than that. Roger Ebert, who's had an up-and-down uh, 2020 in the rewatchables, three out of four stars. The film oh. is not... Okay. Yeah, the, the film is not as taut as it could have been but I prefer its emotional perception to the pumped up sports cliches. I was sort of expecting it's about the pressures of being a star athlete the whole life, not the game highlights. Fair. Um, the, the reviews were pretty, pretty lukewarm in some spots. I was surprised. Some people got it. Other people were like, eh. And I, I think that happens a lot with movies that we do on these. Sometimes when people see it the first time, they miss a lot of the nuance and, um, you almost did. I think this this is a movie I remember in the I, re, I remember writing about it from my old website because uh, I was on at ESPN at that point. I loved it right away, but I also didn't realize it was going to be as rewatchable as I, as I think it has been. Uh, most rewatchable scene. Mm, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you six, and if I left anything out, jump in after. So first one, the opening kids basketball scene with uh, Candy Girl. It's just. Everything is perfect about it. The musical choice is just perfect. Uh, the scene is perfect. The taking off the hat with the hair, their reaction to her. Oh, man. He is a girl. Man, girls can't play no ball. Ball better than you. Her game, Quincy kind of slowly talking himself into it. The foul, the way she handles the scar, she kind of likes it. She's looking at it, like touching it. I love everything about it. Is that, I mean, that's almost a perfect flashback scene. Usually those go badly, right? Yeah, they do. But I think that this one was was really uh, well done. And the musical choice, and might I just say, if people, if you focus on the music in this whole movie, this soundtrack is amazing. Um, a ton. I mean, you had, like you pointed out, New Edition, you got Maxwell, you have Guy, you have Roger Troutman. Like, it is, you have Raphael Sadiq. I mean, it is a really- Shaka. Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan. You have a strong soundtrack and it kind of, in a way, it makes me kind of wistful because there there was a collection of movies and especially black movies 
where the soundtrack was often better than the movie. And people were living to go to, I guess we were into CDs at that point, living to go to like, you know, Virgin uh, or, you know, Best Buy or Blockbuster Music and buy these CDs because the soundtracks were so fire. So I think you have um, kind of an upbeat new edition song, a nostalgic group. You have them, you know, battling back and forth. And it just, it kind of was a, the perfect start, jump start to their relationship. And actually, the first song of the whole movie is Love and Happiness by Al Green, which is... That is know, right. Yeah, all, which all is a timer. classic. But if you go on Spotify, not to plug Spotify, even though we love Spotify, but I'm kind of plugging Spotify. They have those playlists where you can just you put in Love and Basketball. And there's multiple playlists. It, they're really good. Like, the songs are good. The songs are good. Even, like, they use Simply Red, Holding Back the Years. That was a huge song. Uh, and then this woman's work was the... The Unpl- MTV Unplugged remake was it of the Kate Bush song, which, you know, has its own things where you're actually using something that happened in front of an audience. But Marvin Gaye's in here. Uh, I had that in What's Age the Best, but I think it's an important one to cover anyway. Uh, next scene I have, Monica finding out she's going to USC and going through the window and and all that stuff. I'm also happy. I, I like the basketball, the championship game, and I, all that stuff I, I think could potentially be rewatchable too. But I like the whole getting the letter, looking at it. Where's she? It was on my desk when I came home. What you wait for? Can you? Sure. All right. What? Damn, girl. They want you. She kind of wants him to read it, and it leads to all the uh, all the stuff that comes after. Monica at USC taking the charge to win the game, <laughs> but then the locker room after. One of the things I really love about this movie is some of the basketball team stuff and them in the making fun of each other and the way they interact and the weightlifting. It's only maybe three scenes. But really well done. I, I, I really do feel like they're a team. I don't know how they pulled that out. Obviously, Gina played, so she had a good sense of what to do. But it, it really had – I remember I, at the Holy Cross, uh, our women's team, I got to know you know them a little bit. But it was the same kind of dynamic. Like you have all these people from all these different parts of the country. You have some tall ones. You have some tiny ones. And there's a lot of, lot of like ball busting. And I just thought they nailed that. They, they, Anything to add on that for him? Yeah, um, what I was going to say, too, I think what struck me about that is showing how competitive women can be. And because yeah. that sometimes that we saw that, that I think that's one of the things that made League of Their Own so special is that you saw that that competitive nature that women have, because I think sometimes that tends to be dulled a little bit. But I thought the tension between her and Sidra, the the senior whose job she's coming after, I thought that was a nice a very nice sort of subplot within the larger plot of her yeah. trying to stake her position. And we, and it's something that's obviously common in sports, but I think sometimes people don't associate that level of competitiveness and pettiness to occur between female athletes. So I thought that was even more important to highlight that dynamic. Yeah, I agree. Um, I'm throwing this in there. It probably is a atypical choice, but I, I love when she goes overseas. I love that whole six minute stretch the Spanish basketball, 
uh, her having dinner, Sidra talking about how the Italian guys love her. Like I'm, I'm just all in on that whole section. Her in Barcelona, it gets you thinking of, you know, this seems great. They're treated like heroes. They're getting paid. But, you know, the underlying theme is like, this sucks. Like this is, they have to go to some weird country where they don't speak the language. The coach is yelling at them in Spanish. And this is their only alternative for uh women's basketball. But it, it, that, that has to be in the rewatchable, right? Am I, am I wrong on that? Or should no, that no, be you're that? not okay, wrong. On, no, you're not wrong on that. And it, then there was an even more nuanced thing in that is when Sidra tells her, um, you know, these Italians love black women. And when she's talking about her own experience and she's just, you know, kind of obviously chiding her because she <laughs> hasn't uh, hooked up with anybody while she's been over there. The thing is, that is actually, I don't know if it's true or if it's if it's more stereotyped than truth, but that's a common thing talked about in, uh, among black women is about when you go overseas, that if you go to Italy, you go to Spain, that the men respond to you different. Um, I call it the the Josephine Baker syndrome because I mean, she, Josephine Baker, the, the famed yeah. artist, um, you know, who wound up having a great deal of success in Paris and whatever. And so that's always been kind of a running um, both truism and stereotype that uh, that European men love black women. So I thought I chuckled when I saw that the first time because I was like, oh, yeah, because people always talk about that. So I was like, look at yeah. them digging even deeper <laughs> into things. I could have I could have had a basketball scene thrown in there, too. I would have liked to have seen the outcome <laughs> of the championship game. Um, <laughs> two more rewatchable scenes. Her and her mom in the kitchen is just a great scene. It's really well written. The one where her mom slaps her, right? That one? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All of it. And yeah. and some deep, dark shit is coming up and they don't really realize that that's going to happen, but it does. And it just kind of happens. And the mom is unbelievable in that scene, but both of them are really good. I, I, I think that's probably the best scene in the movie. I don't know if it's the most rewatchable, but it's really, really well acted. And, uh, and it pays, it pays off the mom character that you're not really sure what the point of the mom is for the first hour and a half other than just a cliche of the mom who can't believe she had a tomboy. But it's like, is this going to pay off? And then it like pays off. Yeah, big, big time. time. My family had three meals a day. They had somebody to pick up after them. And when my daughters went to a dance, I could help them get ready. That is what I came to care about. That's all you cared about. I must have played in a thousand games. And I can only remember you being at two. You had your coaches and your daddy and everybody for that stuff. You knew it never mattered to you one way or another while I was at them games. It mattered, Mom? Yeah, and I thought it was important that they gave that scene some depth. Um, and they gave Alfred Witter some depth. I think they kind of tried to fool you a little bit by saying, oh, she's going to be the typical mom that wants the girly girl and she's going to stand in her way this whole movie. And while she she didn't necessarily, I wouldn't have characterized her as somebody who stood in her way. But I think by having that tension between them, it actually made when things kind of turned around in the end, it made that even more a, a rewarding and Kudos to both of them because it felt so real that they're really, yeah. that they really were always going to be kind of distant and tense with one another. So I, I thought, and mothers and daughters go through those kind of things. I mean, I'm sure you've witnessed these things as in your household, right? That sometimes not- it could be World War Three between mothers and daughters. <laughs> I, I mean, they're natural enemies. <laughs> it's like they're Iran and Iraq. 
it's just not going to work. Um, and it's amazing to watch. Hey, there's like real love, obviously there, but it's a daughter's ability to just annoy her mom is unparalleled. Like the moms <laughs> right. just, just they want so many things to be different about them, and it's just not, and it drives them crazy. Uh, <laughs> that scene's awesome, and then um, the famous ending. I'll play you. What? One game, one on one. <laughs> For what? Your heart. <laughs> you out of your mind. So what? You gonna bitch up? Huh? What's that supposed to be? Some psychology? Look. I know why you broke up with me in college. And not that it wasn't messed up. But I should have been there for you. Sina Lathan's incredible in that scene. Uh, Omar taking off the brace. It's getting serious now. Um, the You Make a Fool of Me song. Perfect choice. Michelle and Dale Cello, shout out to her. <laughs> and then really good ending where you think she's going to win and she doesn't. He wins. And... The way she reacts to that, like, oh my God, I I just lost this guy. Not only lost the game, I lost this guy. Everything she does with her face and her mannerisms, and she walks away like a loser. And then he does the hey, double or nothing. And all of a sudden, we're at the WNBA game. There's a kid. She's got the hyphen on her jersey. It's such a good ending. It's a great, great, great last 10 minutes and actually a really good basketball game. It's not like Ray Allen against uh, Denzel and he got game or anything, but it's it's solid. They pulled it off, right? Yeah, no, they definitely pulled it off. Um, you know, at first he was kind of running circles around him. Uh, clearly he, hey, when he said he hadn't picked up a basketball in four months, he wasn't lying because <laughs> he, he certainly looked a little, you know, rusty. But I think the overall thing was that it brought out the, they brought out the best in, in each other. So uh, some parts of that basketball scene, I think why it works so well to end that way is that it was indicative kind of their relationship that they could bring out the best in each other. However, that being said, on game point, might I ask, might I add, on game point, I have a beef. I have a beef on game point. She chokes. Felt, she choked, but I wondered in the back of my mind, and this will get into my rant at some point where I, I lobby for the fact that Q was actually not a good boyfriend. But she chokes and, you know, she goes to the holiest or whatever. Um, but when he gets game point on her, he does it in the most aggressive way possible where he like shoves her down. Then he dunks on her. And I'm like, so, all right, that's kind of indicative of basically how your whole relationship was, particularly in the bad parts. And he seems sort of proud of himself that he does it. And I know he kind of turns around a minute later, but I was just like, that was quite the microcosm of their whole relationship. Yeah, I always took that as... He he was hit rock bottom in a lot of ways and he just wanted to win. Right. And, and was just like, I need to feel good about myself for two seconds. But then he realizes Correct. what a fucking dick he was with the whole thing. <laughs> right. I think if they do that in 2020, he probably just shoots a three, right? I, don't, I would like I don't to think, think it, so. Yeah, I don't think it, I don't think there's a physical component to the last thing. <laughs> um, any other rewatchable scenes for you? Uh, for me, I thought that their argument that they had when he told her um, that they were going pro, that that's that was a good that he was going pro rather, that that was a good rewatch, rewatchable scene for me, because I think it often it got at kind of the tension. I think that sometimes not just with an athlete, but successful women can feel that they have to choose one, that they either have to choose a relationship or they have to choose to have um, a successful professional career that those two things can't coexist. And so I thought that that scene 
um, that the honesty and rawness in that scene kind of brought out a situation that we all, you know, kind of have been through um, in some form or fashion throughout our lives. Is that, oh, okay, because women are constantly asking themselves, um, you know, do you want to be an awesome professional or do you want to be happy as if those two things are in two separate worlds? And so I thought that they did a really good job of of kind of highlighting um, that part of it. That night you wanted to talk about your dad. I had curfew. What was I supposed to do? Stay. If I stayed, I wouldn't be stark. Well, at least you got your priorities straight. I never asked you to choose. You never have to. I'm a ball player. If anybody knows what that means, it should be you. If basketball is all you care about, why are you boning me? Um, I kind of agree with you on something you said earlier, is that the... Um, usually in sports movies, I don't actually enjoy the sports scenes. I don't because I like you. I'm sure you're watching them and you're like super critical. Like, yeah, come on. like it, it was it really uh, that just didn't look b- uh, believable at all. But I alluded to this scene earlier, but I definitely thought that the scene where she <laughs> she's punished for uh, shooting that three uh, on the break. Well, really, it's the showboating she's punished, punishing for, not the actual act. That's always one of that has always been one of my favorite scenes in the movie, just because I thought it was such a teachable moment. Um, yeah, because even though there were some things that she did that I think if she's a man that it probably wouldn't be judged that way, that that was a good aha moment for her. And it kind of started her evolution as a better teammate. And so it was like a really kickoff, you know, kind of scene, um, you know, for me. And of course, you know, when she takes the charge, I mean, it's like <laughs> she takes the charge. You feel like, OK, so she goes from being a little bit bratty kind of being a pain in the ass to she's rewarded with not hitting the game winning shot, but actually doing something kind of selfless. And so as somebody who was a former high school athlete and um, kind of digs those kind of corny themes about sports, those were like very rewatchable moments for me. I'm going with the last 10 minutes as most rewatchable. Mm. The ba- the basketball game to the WNBA. I really enjoy the WNBA. I don't. It's definitely the most people that probably went to a WNBA game in the first four years. It's like a packed house at the yeah, Staples although, Center. I, you know, I was looking for that, and I had not. Every time I've seen Love and Basketball since it came out, I never looked at the crowd. When I rewatched it for this, I looked at the crowd. I was like, "Huh, I wonder how true to this it was." I actually did see some empty seats, but. It was more, I mean, obviously they were focused on the the joy, joyousness and the yeah. boisterousness of the crowd. But yeah, I had that same thought like, wow, in the early years, I don't know if they were drawing like that. <laughs> 15,000 for a mid-season game. Uh, all right. What's age the best? We talked about this. The soundtrack is, uh, is just epic. I really loved uh, when he asked, you want to be my girl? I just thought that was adorable. The 11-year-old Quincy. <laughs> I just like Dennis Haysbert. Like to, for me, it's, he's just a what's age the best. Like this is, he's the, he's in heat. He's a way to exhale. And then he has this, like re, he's a major league. Obviously he's one of the more famous sports movie characters. He's been a bunch of other stuff, but has this resurgence with this movie. And then he's the president. I was going to say, you forgot. <laughs> he's was our it. first black president. It was, it was David, David Palmer. <laughs> he paved the way for Obama. He did. And he's never given the credit he deserves. Okay. No. And then that. became the Allstate guy. He moved quickly into commercials. But 
Uh, I just always liked him. And I, it, he's basically the same in every single movie TV show he does. But in this one, uh, I just kind of liked having him around. It brought me back to president 24, Jack Bauer, the whole thing. What was funny is that whenever he's been in movies and I guess right the XL would probably be the most comparison. He's kind of the borderline ain't shit dude, often on more of the ain't shit side. Cause like in waiting to exhale, he wasn't shit. Right. And right. so he's kind of the same guy that he was in that except for that guy had no redeemable qualities. And the, this one, I think he did, because he is a caring, loving father. He's just a shitty husband, right? And right. so um, I thought bringing in that dynamic of him and Q's relationship, that was also one of those kind of nuanced things in this film that you had somebody trying to, as in Q, trying to live up to who his father was. And you also have this dynamic of, I think he, even when he hurt the fights in high school and that kind of stuff, he had a very idyllic picture of what his parents' relationship was like. And right. when he started to find out it was not as uh, pristine, it was not as, um, you know, it just wasn't as together as he thought, then he starts not only questioning his father, but I think to some degree he sort of questions that his life has been some kind of lie. And it really hit him hard. And I thought it was kind of, you know, cool that they played off um, that particular relationship. But I, I thought he aged pretty well. And honestly, if you think about the casting overall, it all aged pretty well. I mean, like people may have varying degrees of, um, you know, of, of of how much they like some of these actors or actresses. But like the people in this movie went on to have pretty solid careers that you can yeah. see. Omar Epps has honestly, it feels like he has reinvented himself in a good way, like every five years because people forget like he was it was on house for a long time as well. And, um, you know, ER. he yeah. And ER, that was the other one I was thinking of. And so he, you know, for him to go from a film actor and you mentioned his first few films, his first three or four films out the gate. I mean, that's a pretty ridiculous start to your career to start with juice. I mean, like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So he had a great career. I know Sanaa Latham's career to some degree has been up and down, but she's steady and she's consistent and she's kind of been there for now for the last two decades. Gabrielle Union, we see what happened uh, to her career. Um, Monica Calhoun has had some bright moments through hers. And even though, you know, your wife was thinking that Boris Kojo was Idris Elba before Idris Elba. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was able um, to kind of have a, a, a solid career as well. So I thought the casting and even the little girl who played young Monica, um, uh, Kyla Pratt. I mean, she goes on to have a TV series. So it's like the casting was actually really well done in hindsight. That's pretty good. Yeah. yeah, pretty good run. So I think that age pretty good. High school cheerleaders. You want to do a quick what's age the best on that? Man, yes. Uh, thank you for not letting me forget this. So for those who have never been to um, any uh, sporting event, high school sporting event involving a mostly black school, that <laughs> that um, that ugly chant is one I heard throughout my whole high school career. And we came up with even, you know, worse, um, some of which... Our cheerleaders would sneak some cuss words in there until they got like shut down right. or whatnot. But I was like, shout out to the, to the black high school cheerleaders, man. Before Bring It On, here they were <laughs> doing their thing, you know, before uh, Gabrielle Union uh, led her crew to uh, the ultimate victory over Kirsten Dutz. It was it right. was those young ladies. Well, it's doing funny. Their thing. 
my whole family loves All American, which is also Crenshaw High. Yes, yeah, love that. That is that is definitely the sanitized television version of the cheerleader experience. Correct, this, correct. this is like the actual cheerleader experience. Yeah, that is that has aged super well. Um, and you know, it, it just it was one of this this movie also I think is so rewatchable because it hits on the perfect balance of having themes that still fit the present, but also giving you that nostalgia you need for the past. Like that's why I think the soundtrack is is so major yeah. in this. And as you pointed out, you know, starting the movie out with new edition and it just kind of takes you back to to the innocence of like you know, growing up in that kind of neighborhood and even how boys used to ask them, we could used to call it, um, well, they would usually say, will you go with me? Not like, will you be my girl? But like, will you go with me or whatever? That was the thing. And so I had to laugh. I laughed out loud when I saw that scene. I was like, yeah, that's kind of how they used to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I have a couple more. What's age the best? The USC coaches, late 1980s women's basketball coach haircut. Which I think when when did that haircut officially expire? Like ninety five, ninety six. When did that go out of style? She definitely wore shoulder pads too, which is a perfect tri- tribute to the nineties, the mid nineties. That was that was just a, a perfect personification of how ninety percent of the coaches just looked. Um, Monica and Q outside her house near the end when she says, "When you're a kid, you see the life you want. It never turns out that way." When you're a kid, you. You see the life you want, and it never crosses your mind that it's not going to turn out that way. Mm. It's really pointed. I like that one. It's a good high school yearbook quote. Um, I also have when there's that love triangle thing, when it's going bad for them in USC, and all of a sudden he's bringing some girl to KFC, and and she's in the suite. Monica's in the suite, but then the two roommates are there playing video games and they're kind of like, oh, they're laughing. That, <laughs> Shout out to Charles really, O'Bannon. <laughs> yeah. I love that because it's like just the classic thing that happened in college all the time, right? The roommates kind of enjoying some sort of drama. They're just kind of having popcorn and watching watching the whole thing uh, unfold. Well, I, along those same lines, uh, one of the scenes I, I, I would also point out that age the best is the party scene where that first kind of their relationship kind of first exploded because I have seen that situation too many times, a little too much alcohol, available girl for the second. Some, you know, she walks in and sees them kind of politicking with each other. She's like, yo, what's up with that? And then it was just like, that was kind of the start of all the bad things that kind of happened over the next, you know, 15 minutes. So it's like, it's so, I've seen so many breakups at college parties. It's just like, not even funny. (laughs) Uh, that's the W. That's all I have. Any other what's age the best before we move on? Well, I I thought, and I alluded to this earlier. I thought um, their subtle conversations about gender all aged incredibly well. Um, to pointing out, you know, again the choices that women feel like they're confronted with between a personal and professional life, to um just the lack of visibility uh, sometimes in, in pursuing what you love that women have to experience. I thought it was, it just nailed that, um, you know, kind of head on. And even some of the the complicated dynamics that can be um, another thing I think that age really well is the complication of when you're an ex player, because they didn't spend a lot of time on it, but they spent just enough time with Dennis Haysbert. And even though, yeah, he was using the late night meetings to obviously creep around, but he talked a lot about him trying to build a life for himself now that he wasn't playing and the stress 
and the pressure that he felt from that, which is, as you know, is a very real thing is that once guys stop playing sports, we have to remember that they're still really young based off the rest of society. I mean, you got people retiring at 35. Well, 35, you know, most of us are just kind of really getting into the teeth of our careers and they have to start um, something new all over again and find an entirely new passion. So I thought that part, um, you know, kind of aged extraordinarily well. I have this for what's age the best and what's age the worst. The um, Zeke with the, hey, uh, tell mom I have a meeting. I'll be home later. Like as his adulter excuse. It's like, this is the worst excuse ever. Yeah. I got to have a nine o'clock business meeting. Uh, I'll be home later. And I'm, as soon as I get home, I'm going to shower and it won't be suspicious at all. It's like, come on. Yeah, no, nobody, nobody's going to buy that one, man. He, no wonder he got caught. You didn't come even on. need a private investigator, Alfre Woodard. You didn't need one. Yeah. Zeke, the worst, uh, the worst cheater ever. Uh, more what's age the worst. We talked about how they had to cut around uh, the high school thing with her because obviously Sana Lathan wasn't totally ready basketball wise, but that jumped out at me re- just nitpicking. Um, my wife gets upset when they're about to have the sex scene with the Maxwell song saying, and he thinks she thinks Quincy kind of laughs at at uh, Monica's small boobs. And she's like, that's kind of a bad job by him. Like they're about to hook up and he's just like, whoa, look at those tiny things. And she gets mad every time that happens. So I wanted to throw that out there for her. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I, I guess. <laughs> but I, I didn't I had not actually thought of that that way. Now you're yeah. you want to rewatch that scene and be like, oh, you know, he does kind of smirk. He, does, he doesn't seem to be appreciative of the moment. She, my wife doesn't really love Quincy that much. Some of his behavior and really resents the smirk. Just thought it yeah. was poor taste by him. And then uh, just how how Monica gets the scar, gets shoved and lands on the lawn. And it's like, I, I don't know. I, I would have like reshot that. There yeah. Or, yeah so, it's come on. Like, Going yeah. to the basket support. Um, <laughs> any other uh, what's age the worst before we move on? All right. This is where I go into my rant about Q as a boyfriend. All right. Let's do it. I don't know if he ages. I don't think he ages the best. And. When you think about the collection of things, and I have written down a list because there was a lot. I was taking notes. I was like, um, mm, let's look at all these shitty boyfriend things that he did. You could easily make the case that he had no business or she had no business ever dealing with him. Um, because the thing is like, all right, he start, let's just start with a whole completely unreasonable reaction to the curfew. Like that was just... She wasn't saying, I'm just going to leave you out here. She was just saying, let's take it back to my room because I have curfew. All right. And I thought his reaction to that didn't really, it made sense because he was angry, but he was so dramatic about it that he's like, you know what? You weren't there sitting with me in this lonely bleacher. So therefore the next thing I'm going to do is go out and immediately hook up with somebody else. I'm like, you would think at that point their relationship might be a little more solid than that. But yeah. throughout the course of when they're, you know, these themes of him being kind of selfish, entitled, arrogant, um, they kind of come up. And um, and then, you know, he he kind of puts her in the friend box until she actually gives it up. And it was like, eh. I mean, it was supposed to be a sweet moment where he was finally figuring out, hey, she's a girl. OK, I got it. But then, you know, it, it was sort of like he was so problematic when they were in college um, that I just cannot 
on some level. I wonder, I don't know if I believe as much in it today that they should have wound up together as I did 20 years ago when I first saw this movie. Well, and then I'm, then it does a, yeah, I tried to call you when Magic retired. Right. right. <laughs> like, it was what? like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, exactly. It's just like, I, that's uh, why you were calling her? <laughs> so here's my defense. I agree with you. Bad boyfriend. And I think I think they probably get divorced because he cheats on her and, you know, basically repeats totally. his dad. But realistic character for a guy who's um, had smoke blown up his ass basically since he was in 10th grade. But then even earlier than that, he's the son of a pretty well-known NBA player and just thinks he's hot shit. And how many times does that guy just make bad decisions with it's not that guy's not locking down one girl and being the most awesome boyfriend he's usually behaving like q is right everybody everybody that looks at him he's flirting with them kind of for a second then even though he's got his arm around his girlfriend and that guy's just gonna make bad decisions which she seemed she spent a lot of time in this movie capitulating to his ego and i'm not sure if that ages well um i agree yeah and that a lot to make him feel more comfortable with himself and so kind of the 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 woman in me just kind of I didn't have as favorable of an opinion of him as I did you know before and it it was kind of like you know when he's like oh I wouldn't have to uh choose when she's like um you know I would never let you make you choose between me and basketball and he's like you wouldn't have to and I'm like do we know this because I don't I'm just like "Mm, I'm not convinced he would have done the same thing because uh, right. there was really nothing in his behavior that would have shown you like, yes, if if the roles were reversed, he would have been like, forget curfew. I'm, I just will be in trouble with coach and whatever, and particularly since he wanted a professional career. Hello. I doubt very seriously if he would have done that. So um, unfortunately, rewatching this has made me put it in the category of where I was. I was sort of slightly disappointed that she actually got with him at the end. I was like, I don't know if this guy deserves you, but right. if you like it, I love it. <laughs> Uh, we're taking one more break, then we're going to do casting with us. Let's take a break to talk about World Central Kitchen. The relief team is working across America to safely distribute individually packaged fresh meals in communities that need support. They're now serving tens of thousands of meals daily in some of our biggest cities like New York and LA. And they're launching initiatives across America to deliver fresh, hot meals to hospitals and clinics, fighting on the front lines while keeping local restaurants and businesses as well. We are making a huge push this month across all of the Ringer podcasts to try to raise money. We're going to try to raise 250000 I also donated 100000 So if everything comes together, we'll have one-third of a million dollars to give to uh, World Central Kitchen. You can help keep your local restaurants alive. You can directly help the heroes in hospitals and clinics who are fighting for us by going to theringer.com slash WCK. Please give whatever you can. The money goes directly to World Central Kitchen. It is a charitable donation. Once again, that is theringer.com slash WCK. And thanks to those guys for all the awesome stuff they're doing out there. We did a lot of the casting what-ifs. The only thing that I found interesting in the research was Gabrielle Union was a great athlete and was a point guard. And um, it was like her dream role to be Monica, but she had like no acting experience at all. And she auditions for the Monica role doesn't get it, but then they give her the role of the high school groupie, basically who goes to the dance with, with Q. But it's interesting. Like maybe if she had had like two movies under her belt, maybe she would have been Q. I don't know. Mm. I, I never knew she was a basketball player like that. I'm 
excited for the Dwayne Wade, Gabrielle Union kids if she had the point guard <laughs> DNA. You know, I love nothing more than uh, athlete kids. It's yes. one of my favorite, my favorite uh, things. Um, okay, some quickies. Best That Guy, a.k.a. the Joey Pants Award. So Q's mom is one of those ladies, Deborah Morgan. You just kind of know her, but you can't remember where she was. She was in soaps. I know her from way back in the White Shadow. She was Dolores. She uh, she gave uh, Thorpe VD in a very controversial <laughs> Thorpe Coolidge VD episode way back wow. when, 40 years ago. Debbie Morgan. <laughs> yeah. So I have her unless there's a better... Do you have that guy or that girl in this that surpasses her? Well, the thing is with Debbie Morgan, like I grew up watching her literally because uh, my mother was a huge fan of All My Children, which she was on a show for a very right. long time. And the role that she played in this movie was, it kind of reminded me very much of her All My Children days. Right. Cause that, yeah, because I mean, she was a little dramatic. I, I think she was supposed to be dramatic, kind of flashy, flamboyant. Kind of a caricature of what an athlete wife would kind of be like, right. and which I thought was uh, that she nailed to perfection. But I, I'd say that was a pretty good one. I'd agree with that one. The Vincent Hanna They Knew Award for overacting. Uh, Coach Davis, she <laughs> she she could have dialed it back maybe fifteen percent in a couple scenes, and even <laughs> the scene when when she tells Monica like, you know, when when I'm riding you, that means I like you. It's just. I don't know. I, I I wanted a little more from Coach Davis. It just seems like you're always riding me. You think I go horse for a player with no potential? When I ignore you, then you're worried. Uh, the Deion Waiters Award is is a fertile category. Uh, we have mm. Gabrielle Union early. Some Chick Hearn. There's a Chick Hearn Chick cameo. Hearn. <laughs> yeah. Alfre Woodward, I, I'm not sure she's eligible. I think she's in too many scenes. So I'm gonna go. Here's my nominee and, and choice, but you can you can go differently. I love Sidra. I thought Sidra really brought it. And she's in, you know, she's probably in four scenes, but each scene, she's just really good. Her she's played by Erica Ringer, who mm-hmm. I I think this is probably the movie she's maybe she should have won the best that guy award because she's Sidra. But uh I really liked her, so that's my choice. Yeah, no, she was uh she was great <laughs> in this because every time that she was in it, it's like you could tell like she kind of poured her heart into it. Um, but it, it was funny because uh with Gabrielle Union, aka Shawnee Easton, her character in this movie. Yeah. Um, I would never not tease her because her and I are friends, and I would never not tease her about the fact that she said that she would lick the sweat off of Q's booty. And I just <laughs> I've never been able to not remind her of this because right. I'm like, so when they gave you that scene, when they gave you that line, did you think of improvising? Did you think of adding more to that or what? Right. Cause that's like her a, first scene. Yeah, it is. It, it, it's definitely her first scene. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked that you didn't put Charles O'Bannon in here for, for some award. <laughs> well, and also Terry Cummings is the bartender. And Terry Cummings as the bartender, yeah. right? Yeah. Goes, they snuck some in. Thanks, T. I was like, oh, look yeah. at that. Alluding to the Stop. fact that it's, it's, it's Terry Cummings. Um, you know, I, I think the coach is a good choice. Um, you know, even though it was, you know, kind of to some degree a, a, a smaller, they weren't as vocal as her, but I would have I would have given that award, you know, honestly to her teammates because I thought that even though a lot of them didn't have to say anything, the fact that they were able to um, visually show like how much they were a team or like, don't worry about it. Like they kind of showed that bond without having many lines. And I know that Gina cast 
um, college players in it. And one of my friends who um, played for the Tar Heels, she was supposed to be in this movie. And so she was just like, yeah, I mean, years later, she's like, I can't believe that I didn't wind up in this because uh, something happened. I think she has some conflict of interest. And I'm sure when it's like, oh, yeah, some some small, smaller budget movie comes, she's like, I don't even know what this is about. But I thought there, the, the team dynamic, and you kind of pointed this out earlier, those teammates were able to sell that with very few lines and mostly with like kind of visual communication, partly led by Sidra. I like this. You might've just made history on the rewatchables. The first ever team Dion waiters award. That's right. This is, like <laughs> this is good. All right. We'll give it to the entire team. Recasting couch. I'm really proud of this one. She's been on my mind since she was a star of a recent rewatchables. Lisa Bonet is Q's mom. What? I think she could have pulled it off. Yeah. No. Yeah. I'm just getting her in. She, she's aging a little up. She's pretending she's, I looked it up. She was 33 when they made this movie. She could have, she could have played 38, but uh, I just want more star power in the Q's mom role. I want somebody that I know was like just ridiculously hot age 19 and he can't resist. And now all of a sudden he's got a son and now she's still looking good. Um, but I just really just want to get Lisa Bonet in this movie. Was I'm still on a Lisa Bonet kick right now. I'm not you're, buying You're down. That. You're vetoing that. I'm not you're buying it. I, I, have, I have two potential options that I thought could have played Q's mom. Lynn Whitfield and Ooh. Angela Bassett. So how old is Ang- Well, Angela Bassett, she doesn't have age because she's- exactly. she was born. She was born <laughs> in, in, in prehistoric times. She, <laughs> right? she doesn't age. She has no blood. Angela Bassett would have been great. Yeah. And then, that's a good and, one. That's better than mine. And the other, um, the, cause she's supposed to be playing this kind of, str- you know, she's a strong woman, but yet she's been, you know, kind of done over wrong by this man. If you've seen Angela Bassett and waiting to exhale, you know, she could pull this off. <laughs> um, she might've lit, uh, uh, his stuff on fire. Q's dad. The other one, that I thought of as a potential sub, even though I love her. So I feel, I feel blasphemous even wanting to recast Regina Hall in anything because I think she's one of the funniest women, even though she wasn't obviously playing a comedic, uh, comedic role. She is such a talent and can do so many things. However, that being said, I did wonder if Nia Long could have played her role as, as the Ooh. sister. Um, that would have been interesting. Um, keeping with that theme of circulating the the same 10 or 12, um, you know, black actresses. And also, in Sanai Lathan's role. No, I'll stop. Give, I'll, give no, I'll give you two I'm options. I'll give you two options. I'll give you two options. Lisa Bonet? Right. No, they're not really Lisa Bonet. <laughs> Regina King and okay. Jada Pinkett. Jada Pinkett Smith, sorry. Is Jada's too small. She's like you think, five you don't feet think tall. She could have, as a guard? I mean, she's, she's too short. a point guard. I don't know. Yeah, don't she... Know? she she could have carried it. She could have carried the. She couldn't have mugsy kind of, it. <laughs> she could have. Who was the first one you said though? Uh, Regina King. I so here's why I Sana Lathan's incredible in this movie. But she one is. of the things she I liked need about to be it. Place. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have a lot of history with her when I saw the movie in 2000. Whereas mm-hmm. like Regina King, I, I by 2000 we have real history with her. She's been in a lot of movies. And I feel like she's Regina King. Sana Lathan, mm. I, I felt like was Monica in this movie. Like I had only seen her in um, one of the, the wood the year before. That was it. That was the first time I ever even remember seeing her in anything. So I don't know. I like the discovery part. 
That's no, good. I, I, like I, we, I like that, that we that. disagreed. <laughs> no, I like and I like that she she played it. I mean, I'm I'm I mean, we're talking about this movie came out in 2000 and up until that point, I think uh her biggest movie was probably Oh, you know what? The Best Man came out um the same year as The Wood. So, it was The Wood, right. The Best Man. Um and she had a she had a small role too in Life with Eddie Murphy, but I don't know if anybody noticed her in that one. Um but this was like a real I think boost for her career as opposed to, as you said, Regina, but it was just because she had made that turn. She had already made the turn in in boys in the hood. And, um, this kind of role would have been, you know, really different from her. Uh, I know a lot of people kind of discovered her with Jerry Maguire, but, um, yeah, it would have been interesting to me to see Regina King kind of pull off trying to be a basketball player. (laughs) Hmm. Half fast internet research. We've covered a lot of it. Um, Dennis Haysbert was hesitant to play another cheater after waiting to exhale. And then uh, he told Jet Magazine he took the role because he saw the emphasis was going to be on the father-son relationship that was close to his heart. Mm. This is the second time Omar Epps played a character named Quincy who preferred to be called Q. Correct. And the second time he dated Tyra Banks. He's just running <laughs> stuff back we- that he's already done. <laughs> hey, play the hits. <laughs> um, Gina said... She really wanted Maxwell's version of this woman's work, and it cost a ton of money. Maxwell's people weren't allowed to be in the soundtrack. They kept it in for Sundance anyway, even though they knew they have the rights. The reaction was amazing. Studio was there. She kept lobbying them. And then finally she went to the head, the Mike DeLuca, the studio head, and said, it has to be the song. So he spent the extra money for it. And it was the right move. But sometimes it was. I remember... We had, when we did two Escobars, which might have been the best of the first 60, 30 for 30s, the score that we had initially in that movie that the Zimbalist brothers had was incredible. And it was expensive and ESPN didn't want to pay it. And it's like one of my biggest regrets in life that we didn't fight harder for it. It was still like a Hall of Famer. It was awesome. And the score was good. But this original score they had was like the most amazing score I'd seen in a documentary. And it's funny, like you have these fork in the road moments and it's something like that where she fights for it, fights for it, fights for it, gets the guy to pay a little extra. And now that's like one of the iconic songs in the movie. Um, and then Sana Lathan never played basketball again. <laughs> she, that's, she, that's in a way though, Bill, don't you think that's kind of, that's kind of sad because if I worked that hard and I actually was, getting I hope she thought that she was actually getting good at it right I would have wanted to I'm not saying that you know she has to be at LA Fitness every Saturday morning or anything but I think she could have kept with it she seems traumatized by the filming Apex Mountain Sana Lathan I I think you could say yes I I bought like an incredible amount of stock for her and it led to some good roles for her and and, you know I, I don't know who got nominated do you think this was an Oscar potential performance by her Ooh, Oscar potential. Um, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the, uh, I'll give you the five nominees. Okay. That'll help. Julia Roberts wins for Aaron Brockovich. Mm. Joan Allen nominated for the contender. She's really good at that. Yeah. Uh, I was like, I love that movie. Laura Linney, you can count on me. She's fantastic. I actually think she should have won this year over Julia Roberts. Ellen Burstyn for Requiem of a Dream, for a dream. Not an uplifting movie. And then Julia Benesh for Chocolat. So it was weirdly, sometimes the 
the best actress category is sometimes just abominable. Like you can't even find five good. This year was actually kind of loaded. Like I, Laura Linney, yeah. I thought she'd won, but Roberts, that was her most famous role. And Joan Allen's really good in the contender. So, um, so I don't yeah, know. I don't tight. know if she should have been nominated or not. It's tough. Could this have possibly been a screenplay one? Because this is an original screenplay, if I'm not mistaken. Well, it's hard to believe that that incredibly diverse 2000s Oscars committee didn't didn't really pay more attention to basketball. <laughs> the 78 year old white guys. Yeah, uh, best original screenplay, almost famous one. You can count on me. Nominated Gladiator. Gladiator. Ooh. Aaron Brockovich Ooh. and uh, Billy Elliot were the five. Billy Elliot has not aged well. Mm. Okay, couple couple more here. Um, Apex Mountain, I say yes for her. No for Omar Epps. Anyone else you have for Apex Mountain? Interesting that you said no for... You know, Would you say yes for him? Make the case, make the yes case for him. Yeah, I would. I mean, I guess I, I'm also looking at his longevity and it, as I mentioned earlier, um, I think the way that despite how... I don't, I don't say despite like his career is like started out bad. I don't mean it that way. But I think he was he spent a while being kind of typecast a little bit and then he was able to kind of move out of that. And just him being able to find reju- uh, like a rejuvenation and a resurgence on television. Um, and then even later in his career, he was still he was still kind of seen as that rom-com guy. Cause like um, uh, almost Christmas is, is a rom-com essentially. It's a movie about family, but it's, you know, it's a rom-com and Gary uh, and Gabrielle union is his, is his romantic interest. So when you think about the trajectory of trajectory of his career, I mean, I'd say, I'd say that he could put up a fight in this category personally. Okay. Yeah. Um, USC, USC basketball. No. Barcelona <laughs> professional women's basketball. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I agree uh, with that one. <laughs> uh, early WNBA th- seeming optimistic about the future league. Absolutely. Yes. You watch this. Yes. You're like, yes the WNBA Precisely. was the first. I was always for the first four years. Like I, I was like, why are they doing this? Like they're spending so much time, capital, promotional time trying to push this league. This was the first time where I was like, oh, that's why they're doing this. This She has nowhere to play. It was just a storyline I was not aware of until I saw this movie. Uh, Picking nits. I have some good ones here. All right, this is tough. I'm gonna I'm gonna ruin this movie slightly for you. So she's a senior at Crenshaw in 1988, but the first time we meet her is 1981. It's seven years earlier because they say that when we meet her, when she meets Quincy, they're playing basketball. So mm-hmm. 1981, Quincy moves to her neighborhood. And the dad is playing for the Clippers. The Clippers don't get to LA until 1984. Oh, in ooh, Sa- that's a good catch. That's a good They're catch. in San Diego. Now, they do show San Diego Clippers stuff in his room. So I don't know if he was making the commute from LA to San Diego every day. Did he have a jump off place, as Jalen would call it, in San Diego? Like, yeah, I'm, you guys stay here. I'm going to keep my apartment in San Diego. I'm guessing that's what they did, but then I would have loved to have seen the San Diego apartment. Uh, but yeah, the, the math doesn't really add up. Another thing where the math doesn't add up. So Quincy basically is like, I want to be one and done. I'm going to the pros. In 1989, people weren't doing that. I mean, this was like college basketball. Freshmen weren't even really, the Fab Five come along in 92 
that was the first time people were like, whoa, five freshmen are starting. Um, we did not really have the one and done stuff until the mid nineties. So this might just a nitpick. The, it's a little ambitious. The Quincy, the five ten shooting guard coming out after a year at USC. I don't know. I don't know if that happens in 1989. Um, how do you feel about Monica making first team all American? Yeah. When he alluded to that, I was, um, you know, I was thinking, okay, would she have had, I mean, she obviously had a four year career. It's like, would she really have been a first team all American? First but team. First. I mean, that's, that's quite a statement. Um, and especially consider she was going to USC and with the basketball history that they have there. And if it was true that she was not, as Sidra reminded her, she was not the first choice that she only got it because somebody else dropped off. You know, she didn't seem like a five-star kind of recruit. I mean, she seemed like maybe a, a, a nice, solid three-star. So it's just like, hmm, this three-star have become that. So the timing of this movie, if she's playing in college from 89 to 93. Oh, there's no way. There's no way. She would have been a first team. <laughs> No it was pretty loaded back then. Like, wasn't Teresa Edwards in college back yeah. then? Yeah, I mean, the, the '96 Dream too. Team was famous. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't see it. I think they could have gone second team and probably pulled that off. That'd have been more believable. <laughs> so Quincy blows out his ACL, and he's in the hospital. Like he had like a kidney removed. Like he goes right to the hospital. He's got the gown on. He's staying overnight. There's people are sending flowers. It's like, this is a two hour operation. You go home after. Why is he in the hospital for three days? Right. That did strike you? Bill, medicine wasn't that advanced then, okay? (laughs) You don't have guys coming back after, um, you know, six weeks after (laughs) a torn ACL and, you know, going on to play. So they had to do the surgery of like immediately after the game. He's like, yeah, we, we got to get this ACO. We got to get fixed now. Not sure. That's how it played out. I had a, you know, I had a knit about the fall itself and I was just like, "Mm, I don't know about this fall being, that's kind of not how they go. I mean, I know. Well, you know, ironically, so I had the same knit, Tony Allen, Boston Celtic, Tore his ACL in the exact same way. Hung on the rim, came down, but came down a little awkwardly. This was probably a 06, 07 range. Early, mm. early Tony Allen. Same thing. And it was like, God, you dumbass. You're fucking hanging on the rim and you tore your ACL. So there, there is a real life precedent for it. Okay. Um, all right. I'll take that nit back. So they live in a pretty nice neighborhood, right? It's, it's, we would say it's upper middle class. Yeah, middle upper class. Yeah, fair. Mm-hmm, fair. Everybody, everybody's windows are just open at all times. <laughs> just windows open everywhere. It's just a very come safe on in and out. Bill. It's very safe. I don't, who here, here's my bedroom with ninety trophies in it. I'm just gonna leave the window open for anybody. Yeah, my father's a clipper. <laughs> yeah, my dad's. Yeah, what could go wrong? We don't have we don't have an alarm system. My dad's an NBA player for ten years. I don't know that jumped out of me, and then um. <laughs> And then, uh, so Quincy tears his ACL at that point. It's, it's made clear. He's bounced around. He's been on a couple NBA teams, but he's made a few million bucks a year. I'm guessing. Cause you know, the, the salaries were pretty good back then. He's been in the Lakers staying at his mom's house. It's <laughs> <laughs> a man in his and mid-20s. About to, be, he, about to be married too. Couldn't have gotten an apartment. Just staying in his old bedroom. 
That, that didn't that didn't sit weird with you? Uh, that was a little weird. I thought it was odd too that she was still living at home as well. I mean, I know she worked at the bank and it's not as lucrative, but I'm like, she probably should be living on her own right now, right? <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> you know, it's a definite nitpick. That's a legitimate one. Any other nitpicks? <laughs> Very small thing. Again, like all of these are, it hits the title. When early in the movie, when she challenged him, when he was bragging about his dad and she's like, well, I bet your dad hasn't scored more points. Has your dad scored more points than Magic Johnson? And he goes, maybe. I'm like, it's Magic Johnson. You know your daddy ain't scored that many points. You know your dad is not as good as Magic Johnson. Like, he's Magic Johnson. That was that's tough. Yeah. That's a good one. Best quote. We mentioned a few. She's a hoe because she's sending you her coochie through the mail. It fucking kills me. What a hoe. Oh, why she got to be a hoe? Because she won't get with me? She's a hoe because she's sending her coochie through the mail. Eh? <laughs> oh, no. Are they cursing their mamas in Spain? I just enjoy that. Is that still your answer to everything? Yeah, when you come at me with bullshit like that. Oh, no. Are they cursing their mamas in Spain? They found breasts in my physical. She jokes in the hospital. He goes, that's funny. I never did. Comes back. Back to your Quincy terrible boyfriend. Like, just pointing out little flaws. Like, what a dick. Uh, any other best quotes? You mentioned the Gabrielle Union licking the sweat off the booty. Sweat off his Q's booty. Uh, another one for me was um, when Monica called Gabrielle Union an honest tramp ass hoe. I really appreciated how that flowed <laughs> super well. Yeah, she's an honest tramp ass hoe. I was all here for that. She's honest. <laughs> yeah, an honest tramp ass hoe. Love the argument between Q's dad and Debbie Morgan, your favorite, clearly, when he was like, anything to keep your fine ass at Gucci and gold. <laughs> I don't know why yeah. that just cracks me up. I was like, yeah, keeping it real. <laughs> I like my bullshit job, okay? And it's going to lead to a front office position. Until then, don't worry. We got just enough savings to keep your fine ass in Gucci and gold. And she she whipped the bracelet at him. That looked like that hurt. That, that yeah. was like a two pound bracelet just flying off uh, Haysbert's head. That was good. I enjoyed that. <laughs> that was good. So I thought, um, you know, those were two uh, pretty good ones. Oh, and um, when he hit her with the uh, the Spalding, or no, he said, "Oh, uh, I, I thought you. I think what he said. I thought you wanted to bone Dick Vitale." Or whatever, <laughs> like when he yeah. when they have their argument outside of there, and he's like, "Why don't you go be with Dick Vitale?" And he named somebody else, and I was like, "Ooh, that was that was kind of a good one." Big win Dick for Vitale Dick Vitale. With, I was gonna say Dick Vitale with the shout out. <laughs> you know, he was a possible Apex Mountain candidate. I should have brought him in. This is the height of Dick Vitale when you just put him right into a sports movie. It made sense. Could this be remade as a ten episode Netflix show? Probably, but don't. My advice would be no. Keep this as is. This movie's timeless. Well, there has been, uh, this is something I asked Gina about, um, is that a lot of people have tried to convince her to do like a sequel, essentially. Yeah. A part two, which she has refused to do, that maybe it could pick up with uh, their kids or, you know, um, uh, or I don't know if they, I don't remember if they had a little boy, a little girl, it looked like a little boy. So if they could pick it up from there and she has refused. And I'm glad that she has resisted that temptation. It's perfect just the way that it is. But Here's the thing, though. I mean, I, I don't know if you did it as a do you think it would work if you did it as a bit of a of a prequel? Like if you just focused on their high school years, do you think it would work as a series? No, you just gave me an idea. So if you were going to do this as 10 episode Netflix series, you did in 2020 and it would just be their kid who's like a junior in high school. Right. And that is true. It's it's them as a couple. 
he's re- she did became maybe she became one of the WNBA's biggest stars. Maybe she's like on ESPN. He's just kind of maybe, maybe his life himself. hasn't turned out. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah. put it this way, yeah, I, that could work. I, I would watch the first episode if you're like, oh, they're doing this. And Gina's, <laughs> Gina wrote it. Um, Sana Lathan said, she said, originally, I was, this is 2015. Originally, I wasn't into the idea of a sequel, but when I read the script um, for, Best Man, for Best Man Holiday. Oh, okay. Because she was out on that one. And then the script, and she was like, okay, this makes sense. So she was like, so for Love Basketball, it always depends. If it was a good script, she, she didn't slam the door. Omar said, Gina and I actually spoke about this. She has this, you don't touch a classic thing. I agree, but it's tempting because it's like, what would this story look like now? The best sequels are when they are, were in the mind during the original. When you were searching for the sequel, that's when it doesn't really work. I agree with that. A uh, hmm. couple, couple unanswerable questions. What do you think happened to Tanya Randall? Got pregnant. Monica took her scholarship. You think she played ball again or is just over? Start, start I think pumping out kids. I think it's just over for her. I think Tanya Randall, it's over. you know, she had a nice run and then just, just finished. She just can't believe Monica took her spot, took first right. to Bombay. She just cringes and silently cries every time she sees Monica. When she sees her accepting her accolades for first team All-American, she right. just weeps. Uh, Zeke's, so Zeke, we know he played for USC which I assume is late seventies range. They weren't, they weren't like that good at basketball that then. Then there's two other jerseys in the, I don't know if you noticed there's the Clippers Jersey, but then there's also a Bucks Jersey. So then if you do the whole math and Terry Cummings gets pulled in there and he, who's now a bartender for some reason, but it's see, I'm guessing he got drafted by the Bucks mid seventies range. So he's playing with, I he might have been playing with Kareem there the last two years before Kareem gets straight to the Lakers. Then he's playing with like the Kent Benson, Junior Bridgman, Bucks in the late 70s. Don Nelson's the coach. Then at some point gets traded to the Clippers. I'm guessing he's a two guard. Looks about right. Yeah. Looks yeah, about maybe right. small two forward. Or, or small I don't know. Forward. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He's on Clippers team, late 70s, early 80s. They got World Be Free. Um, there's some Kermit Washington in there. There's Bill Walton. They signed Bill Walton. His feet are hurt. They draft Terry Cummings. So maybe that's how they became friends. Who knows? One or the other. I'm guessing, you know, maybe like 14 and six Mm. for stats for him. Um, Physical, like a physical two guard or physical small forward. Maybe not a great outside shot, but kind of a defender, like a kind of a warrior type. I don't know. What do you think? I think that's a fair assessment. I would have brought it down a little. I might have said 12 and 7. Seems like a 12 and 7 guy. Bench player. Like started for a couple years, then really thrived as like a seventh man. He's a dude that teams would put on the team, you know, as a veteran presence. He's veteran presence guy. Q, the scouting report is basically like undersized shooting guard, ball hog, um, <laughs> a gamer, athletic, but the kind of guy that NBA teams would talk themselves into taking nine spots too high, and then they put him in the NBA, and it's like, oh shit, he can't guard Andrew Tony, he can't guard, you know, Michael Jordan. Oh my God, Sidney Moncrief's killing him. It's like, where do we play this guy? And it just doesn't really happen. Would be my guess to what happened with him in the NBA, right? 
It's combo guard. What do you think he averaged? What do you what, what would you say his stat his uh, career stat line looks like? Oh, like three point seven points a game. <laughs> it's it's barely like I think he had one good Laker game. Like after Magic retired, the Laker fans got fired up for him for like a minute, and then and then that was it. Any other uh, unanswerable questions for you before we uh, end this? Uh, I wanted to know what was Tyra Banks's reaction when he canceled that wedding two weeks out. Ooh, what happened to things Tyra were Banks? broken. Yes, things were broken. And I also, I, I would guess, ultimate revenge, especially during that time, she totally went out with one of his teammates. She then hooks up with one of his teammates. I see that. Ooh. I see that. I like that. Like Eldon Campbell, she just went right right to. <laughs> oh, they're, they're totally more famous than him and like have, yeah. they've had a better career or whatever, but definitely somebody who was a former teammate. Absolutely. She made she made a run at AC Green. Nothing happened. So then she just started going down the roster. Eldon Campbell, Sedale Three, just kept going. Who won the movie? Well, I think who won the movie was Sinai Lathan. And um, I agree. Yeah, she won the movie. I mean, her performance stands, uh, you know, speaks for herself. But I think she mostly won it because she showed a lot of the complicated nuance nuanced dynamics about being a woman during this time, being a female athlete, being a black female athlete, she hit all the markers. And um, obviously, I think, too, um, she really spoke to, I think, women, uh, hence why I love the movie, women like myself who have an unconventional passion. You know, it's not, especially, you know, me growing up in Detroit, it's not the, it's not exactly a bunch of people, a bunch of little girls or people, period, running around talking about they want to be a sports journalist. And so, I think from that standpoint, um, those things that she was able to convey and just who she was, it was a very inspiring character, I think, for multiple generations of women. I agree. Timeless and a good role model for somebody like my daughter, who, again, has watched this movie five, six, seven times at this point. But um, the type of character that just was not in a movie. And Mm -hmm. you left this movie and you bought a ton of Sana Lathan stock. What else is going to happen for her? Um, I'm with you. I think she won the movie. This was awesome. 20th, 20th anniversary of this movie. It's available on all the streaming platforms. It's not free anywhere, but uh, it's totally no. worth it. And <laughs> and I'd recommend it as a purchase too. Jamel, good luck with uh, your new Wire podcast. I, I'm loving it so far. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, we uh, we definitely are having a lot of fun with it. And uh, I look forward to, obviously, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of this show. And so remember, you do Players Club, man. I, I'm back for you. I got you. I have you you in. I have you locked down for that one already. Thanks, Jamel. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks to Jamel. Don't forget about her podcast that is exclusive on Spotify. It is called Jamel Hill is Unbothered. We'll be back with the rewatchables on Monday night with quite possibly the best comedy of the entire 1980s. Any guesses? Ferris Bueller. Yeah. Monday. It's happening. See you then.